Well, it's great to see everybody this morning. Are you doing okay today? Great. That's fantastic. If you would, take your copy of God's Word, whether it's paper or in your app. Go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 37. That's where we're going to technically be today. There's actually a much bigger story we're going to tell. But before we get into Scripture today, I just want to ask a quick question. It's crazy for me to think that we are right on the edge, and students don't pay much attention right now, because we are right on the edge of the end of summer and school starting again. Can you believe that it's gone so fast? It's just crazy to think that. Yeah, uh, the students are like, no, and the parents are like, yes. It's crazy to think that. If you served as a volunteer during high school camp, middle school camp, or influence any time this summer, would you just kind of wave your hand at us for a second? Could you just, if you served as a, as a, as a sponsor or volunteer in that, yeah, there are people all over the room. Let's just say thank you to them for that. I'm so thankful for you guys. That's so good. And then I know through each of those things, we had prayer bracelets that were up on the stage that many people took and you wore them for a week. If you wore one of those prayer bracelets and you prayed for, for people over the course of the summer specifically in regards to camp, would you just kind of wave your hand in the air for just say, look at all of that. That's awesome. Can we say thank you to them for doing that? That's really, really good. Thank you guys so much for praying for one another. Thank you for the way you served during all of those activities. They're not done yet. Like you heard Joe say, there's some incredible things that are taking place even this Wednesday night. Uh, for students. And then as we get into the school year, it's just going to be incredible to see what God does over the course of the next semester. And, and I just want to ask you to continue to pray for Pastor Chris. Uh, he left on Thursday for a mission trip overseas with the International Mission Board, and he'll be back later this week. But be praying for him as you do that. And one of the reasons why I'm not just, I'm not just simply saying thank you, I think that's really important for us to do, but I'm also highlighting the fact that if you just look around this congregation, just in that one moment, you can see that there's a lot of people inside this community that serve as volunteers. They give of their time, their talents, and their resources to just help people and to share the gospel and to raise up disciples and to hang out with kids and maybe throw a water balloon every now and then at someone. And um, so they, they exist in that context as a volunteer. But did you notice the number of people in our church that are praying so some of you may not have gotten a wristband. Some of you may just be someone who's praying for the people of our community. And I'm just so thankful for the prayers of God's people. Rich Neely and Chris Neely, they were a couple that came here for a while. And they were, they were at first uh, home, uh, home parents for the Baptist Children's Home. They made this their church home. They served down on our Tulsa campus. And uh, he's just, he's got the heart of a pastor. And so uh, about a year and a half ago, they were moved by God to, um, it's, it's really a crazy name that confuses me all the time. It's First Baptist Church, New Mexico, Missouri. <laughs> um, and so every time he tells me where he's serving, I get confused. Which side of the world are you on? You're kind of over, he's in Missouri, but he's over there. But on a regular basis, I get a text message from Rich Neely just saying, not simply saying, I'm praying for you. He actually will put in his text message, here's the verse of scripture I read, here's how I'm praying for you. And I can't tell you what a blessing it is to be prayed for specifically. And I hope that you've experienced the effect and the power of praying specifically for someone and that you've been prayed for by someone and that you know that. Because I can tell you with honesty that my world, my life, my family is different when people are praying for me. 
sometimes whether I know it or not. And I'm just so thankful for the prayers of God's people, and I'm thankful for the way you as the people of this church pray for one another. You know, there are times when we pray, um, my wife doesn't always pray like this, but there are these moments when she prays like we're driving through the Coles parking lot, and, and her prayer is, God, let me get a close let me get a close parking spot. Please, God, let me have a close parking spot. Please, can I do that? And then someone pulls out and she zips in and somebody else is honking at her and she's like, see, God likes me today. Um, and so I hope we don't pray quite like that. You can pray like my wife. She prays really well, but that's one of those moments. And, and she's not here today. She's actually on that mission trip in New York City. So if I want her to know I said that today, I'll tell her, okay? And if you tell her, I'll deny it. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll retract that from the, from the, from the video. But Prayer is such, it's such a valuable gift that God has given to us. It's just such a valuable gift. Think about what happens when you pray. The God and creator of the universe, the sovereign Lord who has no reason at all to know my name, steps into my heart and mind and into my world, into my space, not just to hear the things that concern me, but to do something about it. Not to just hear my gripes and complaints, not to just hear my wishes and desires, but He steps into my world to provide His wisdom and His guidance. He steps into my world to say, hey, guess what? I care about the things you care about. And I want to hear about the things you care about. And I'm just struck by the fact that when I work, I work. But when I pray, God works. And when you work, you work. But when you pray, God works. And, and I think it's interesting that Scripture tells us that with faith, we can move mountains. But there was an old preacher who would say, Yes, with faith you can move mountains, but with prayer you can move God. And I just think that's such a remarkable, such an amazing gift that God has given to us. Now, it's not something mystical. It's not something magical. It's not if I, you know, make the right motions and sing the right songs and say the right words that now God is honor-bound to do everything that I say. No, that's not at all how prayer works. It's about my heart aligning with God's heart as I pray. It's about God... Uh, I heard someone once say that prayer is like the steering wheel of our life. The problem is I keep my hands on the steering wheel, and with that I get to move the car wherever I want to go. But the reality is it's like I'm a passenger in the vehicle, and God is the one who's driving, taking me where he wants me to go. And occasionally I see something shiny on the side of the road, and I go, hey, God, that'd be cool. Could you take me over there? And sometimes he's like, yes, that's going to be awesome. Let's go ride that roller coaster. And, and sometimes he looks at me and goes, yeah you don't want any of that. That's the bad part of town. You know, you don't want to stop there. And he just kind of keeps going on down the road. But we get to have this constant conversation with one another through prayer. And it's just such a beautiful and brilliant relationship. And so I guess as I'm thinking about that, and as I'm talking about that, I'm wondering how you're praying today. 
what are you praying for, who are you praying for, how are you praying, and all of those things. Because when we read Isaiah chapter 37, really we're just going to read about three verses and I'm going to tell the rest of the story because this is just such a big section in Scripture. If you've been in our daily Bible readings as a church, we're trying to read through the Bible together this year and I hope you're keeping up with that. If you've been keeping up all week long, we've been in 2 Kings and we've been in 2 Chronicles and we've been in Isaiah, just a bunch of chapters of Scripture and all of them have this one thing in common. It's the story of King Hezekiah. He was the king of Judah, uh, the king of the southern kingdom. And Hezekiah, in the line of kings of Israel, he was the third most prosperous, the third most popular king of all the kings of Israel. The first two were King, king David, of course, and then King Solomon. So we see King David and King Solomon celebrated a lot, but we also get into 2 Kings 19 and 2 Chronicles 32 and Isaiah 35, 36, 37, and all of that. We start reading about this other king named Hezekiah who's also prosperous, who's also successful, who also lives through some crazy, amazing times. And the thing that I see in Hezekiah's life, it's just kind of this theme that runs through his entire life, is at every turn, actually it says he followed in the footsteps of his father David, which is interesting because David was like great, 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 great grandfather. He was a man that, that Hezekiah really never knew, but was influenced by. And he followed in the footsteps of his father David to be a praying man. And every time there was a challenge or a problem, every time there was a decision to be made, every time there was a struggle that he faced, you can find a spot somewhere in those passages of Scripture where Hezekiah prayed. And I just find that really awesome and really fascinating. So when we get to Isaiah chapter 37... Uh, go ahead and turn there with me right now. We're going to read three verses today. And then after we read those three verses, we're going to tell the rest of the story. And as we tell the rest of the story, it's all going to be in the context of how Hezekiah was a praying man. And what can we learn from the prayers that he prayed and the things that he faced? And, and what is it that God wants us to see today about how we talk to him, how we hear from him, and how we pray for the things that are going on in our lives and around us? So Isaiah chapter 37, we like to stand in, in an, as an act of worship in honor of the reading of God's word. So if you would, stand with me. And then again, as an act of worship, kind of an act of praise, at the end of reading it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, praise be to God. So here it is. It's really just a few verses, Isaiah 37, beginning in verse 5, and what you're going to see uh, to a large degree isn't Hezekiah praying, you're going to see Isaiah coming to Hezekiah saying, hey, you prayed about this problem, and here's what God has to say about it. So we're kind of starting at the, it's not really at the end of the story, but later in the story. So Isaiah chapter 37, beginning in verse 5. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus the Lord, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Surely I will send a spirit upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks so much. You can be seated. That almost reads like a little bit of a movie teaser or a trailer. You catch the end of it where God's answering the prayer. Clearly, there's some conflict, right? This, the king of Assyria has come to Judah, to Jerusalem, and he's, he's making threats, and he's saying, I'm going to take over your kingdom. And Hezekiah has prayed about it, and now you see Isaiah say, here's the answer to that prayer. But before we ever get to this scene, you have to get to the spot. You have to understand the spot that shaped Hezekiah into a man who is a praying man. And here's the thing about Hezekiah that I find really fascinating. And he's just like all the other kings of Israel. Every king of Israel uh, is, is kind of evaluated next to King David. Either he followed in the footsteps of King David or he didn't. The, the nation would think of them as either a good king or a bad king. And then God would either declare them as the king that drew, them, drew the people closer to him or the king that, that, that caused the people, that, that incited the people to rebel against God. Well, King Hezekiah was one of those kings that, that moved the nation of Israel to repent of their sin, to stop worshiping false gods, to remove idols from their nation, and to worship God. He was known as one of the good kings of Israel, not just by the people because they were prosperous, but also by God because he moved the children of Israel to be people who repented and follow hard after God's heart. That's, what they, that's just one of the things he did. But what's interesting is that's exactly the opposite of his father, King Ahaz. Hezekiah followed in reign and in rule, King Ahaz. King Ahaz was his father. King Ahaz set up all kinds of pagan worship. He set up all kinds of false temples and high places, and he just got it wrong over and over and over and over again. And then Hezekiah becomes king. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he becomes king. Well, think about the culture he was raised in. Think about the family he grew up in. Think about his life as a young man. He's, the, he's a prince, right? He's the son of a king. He can pretty well do what he wants and have what he wants because it's good to be the king, and I'm not the king yet, but I just can't wait to be king, right? Somebody should write that down. That'd make a good song. I just can't wait to be king. That'd be a, we should contact Disney about that. Um, but here's Hezekiah as a 25-year-old man, and it actually celebrates Hezekiah's mom just by saying, and here's who Hezekiah's mother was. How often do we actually see that referenced in the lines of kings? I actually think Hezekiah's mom had a lot of influence in his life. I'm not sure, but I think he did. But he had this very complicated family. He had a mother that was influencing him for good. He had a father that was saying, oh, go worship all these false gods. Go do your thing. You're, you're going to be king someday. Do your thing. And it's interesting that as soon as Hezekiah took the throne... He pulled down the high places. He opened up the temple. He restored some of the worship, uh, the acts of worship that took place in the temple at Jerusalem. He reinstated the Levitical priests and kind of brought them back into prominence and into authority. And he did that not because of his father. He did that in spite of his father. And it just reminds me that when your family is complicated, you should pray like God is your only hope. That's actually what I think I see in Hezekiah's life. When your family, when, when you have a complicated family, anybody here have a complicated family? <laughs> um, anybody here have struggles with moms and dads? Maybe you're an adult and your moms and dads are, are uh, you're the adult children of your moms and dads. Anybody have struggles politically, religiously, financially? in any way, shape, or form. Anybody have a complicated family? Maybe you're a parent and you've got teenage kids or you've got young kids and, 
And it just makes me, it's just interesting to note that every child, every child is going to be that kid that either receives what you teach them or rejects what you teach them. They're either going to imitate what you do or they're going to ignore everything that you say. And there are these moments when you think that they're ignoring the important parts and imitating the bad parts. Have you experienced that? When, when you just feel like your kids are ignoring all the good things you do and imitating all the bad things that you do and you just have that moment where you're stopping and they're, you're having an argument and you're like, oh no, they learned that from me. <laughs> That's when you have a complicated family one of the things we see Hezekiah do is he prays like God's his only hope. And then as you go through the story of King Hezekiah, there's just some other things that we see. He's overcoming the effects of his dad who was wicked and led the nation of Israel to do bad things. The nation that King Hezekiah inherited was faltering and it was failing. He lived in a really challenging time as he was actually king. He got, so there's this split that happens in Israel, right? There's this nation, king, uh, and, and it's one nation, and there's 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. But after David, after Solomon, as the civil wars take place, what ends up happening is the nation of Israel becomes known as the northern kingdom, and every tribe of Israel but one says, we're going to continue to be this one nation. The other nation that, that breaks off from Israel is the, is the, nation, is the tribe of Judah, that's actually where Jerusalem is. King Hezekiah, King Ahaz, they're the kings of the southern kingdom, which is the kingdom of Judah. And, and Hezekiah knows this history of rebellion. He knows this history of rejection. And then there's another nation, the Assyrians. And he's watched in his lifetime, the Assyrians walk right through Israel and make Israel no more. He's watched the Assyrians just wipe out all of Israel. And he's watching the way the Assyrians act and their posture and that he's just, he's just a good political maneuver and he's realizing, oh my goodness, they're coming after us next. They walked right through Israel, next they're going to walk right through Judah and Assyria is going to be the nation in the world. And so he sees this happening and at the same time he's looking internally in his nation and they're worshiping false gods and they're cheating one another and they're, they're, there's just this high degree of selfishness, there's this high degree of, 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 of just wickedness and evil, and he looks at the nation as a 25-year-old young man, and he realizes, my nation, this nation that I've inherited, man, what did my father do? This nation is just misguided. And I think it's interesting that when he realized his nation was misguided, do you know what he did? He prayed like God was his only hope. So when your nation's misguided, you know what I would suggest? I'd suggest that, hey, maybe, maybe you should pray like God is your only hope. And it's interesting because when I hear the boomer generation talk, they'll talk about this nation they inherited from a previous generation and all the problems that they have to fix and all the rights they have to wrong know all the wrongs they have to right. Or maybe I did say that right. I don't know. Because there's a nation that came, or there's a generation that came after the boomers, right? And after the boomers, you get the millennials. 
And the millennials are looking at all the generations that came before going, oh, look at all these wrongs we have to right. Look at all these things that are broken that we're going to have to, look, all these taxes we're going to have to pay because all these people made all of these decisions. And then there's Gen Z that's looking, going, man, look at all these wrongs we're going to have to right. Notice I skipped over Gen X. That's my generation. That's because we're the skipped over generation anyway. We get to blame everybody. And we're constantly just looking around going, oh my gosh, everybody's bigger than us. There's so many more people in both of those generations. And we can't do anything. And we just feel hopeless because we look at this misguided nation and we wonder, what can we possibly do? Or we look at another generation and go, you got it so wrong and we've got it so right and we want to fix everything. But guess what? When your nation's misguided, maybe instead of pointing blame, blame doesn't really fix anything, maybe take some time like Hezekiah did to call people and one another to repentance and to pray like God is your only hope. He's got enemies within. He's got enemies without. The Assyrians are on the march. The people within are corrupt. And and it's just incredible to see the pressure that he's facing. And he prays like God's his only hope. You know, there's that verse that we quote periodically about our nation, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, If my people who are called by my name, he's talking about Israel, he's not talking about America, but but it's still relevant. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. And Isaiah, or not Isaiah, but Hezekiah goes, I think I should probably take that to heart. And so he led his people to pray like God was their only hope. And you know what came flowing out of that prayer for his nation? Hezekiah became the third most successful king of all of Judah, all of Israel. And so when you're successful, when you're successful, you know what you should do in the middle of your success? You might be able to guess it. You should pray like God is your only hope. Because out of these prayers and out of these activities and out of these stresses and pressure, God led Hezekiah to begin inviting his nation to repent. He tore down the high places. He reinstated godly worship through the temple in Jerusalem. He reinstated the Levites. He started calling the people of his nation to worship God and God alone. He prayed like God was their only hope. And in the middle of all of that, in the middle of all of that, when they were successful... Hezekiah bows his knee to God and says, thank you, God. Thank you so much for this success that you've given our nation. Would you please, God, do it again? Would you please, God, do it again? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 1, verse 9, and just look at this. Here's just an encouragement that James has for us as successful people. You know, in the United States, we are a prosperous nation. We actually live in the most prosperous nation and the most prosperous generation in the history of the world. And sometimes there's a temptation with success that comes. Hey, because we've been successful, we don't need God anymore. So we stop praying like God's our only hope. We forget in our success, we forget in our riches, it's the danger of having things. It's the the risk of knowing things that maybe we would step aside from the thing that we know the most, and that's that God can be trusted, that God is sovereign, and that we need to rely on Him for everything. He's the one who's given us the strength to work, and out of the work that we do, He's the one who produces the bounty and the influence and the growth 
of all the things that come next. If the crops are going to grow, it's going to be because God grew the crops. And He invited us to join Him in that process of work by planting and sowing and reaping and caring for the crops. And so whatever job you have, your paycheck may come from QT, but you're employed by God in that space. Your, your profit comes from Him. And so sometimes as we become successful, it's really easy for us to forget that God is the source of our success. And so when you're successful, might be an even better time to pray like God is your only hope. When your family's complicated, when your nation's misguided, when you're successful, pray like God's your only hope. Look at the encouragement of James chapter 1, verse 9. It's actually more of a warning than an encouragement. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away, for no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man will fade away in all his pursuits. Hezekiah realized this. I'm not sure where all this wisdom came from, except that he was a praying man, and God reveals and teaches and shows and guides and protects and guards. He does all kinds of things to our head and our heart as we pray to shape who we are and how we act and the words we use and the actions we choose. And somehow, as Hezekiah prayed, like God was his only hope, even in his success, Hezekiah realized, God, you're my only hope, and these riches that we have are fleeting, and I can't trust in them. I can't trust in them. I can enjoy them. I can enjoy them, and I can employ them for the glory of God and the good of His people. I can enjoy them, and I can employ them, but I sure shouldn't trust in them because they're here today, and they'll probably be gone tomorrow. And he had so many examples all around him. Assyria was, was walking through all of the Middle East, one town after another, one nation after another was falling at the hands of the Assyrian king, Sennacherib. That was his name. Sennacherib was the king of Assyria. And one, one city, one town after another was fallen, and even the kingdom of Israel had fallen. The kingdom that had been so prosperous under David and under Solomon he watched Assyria wipe them out. And part of the reason was because they never, they, they didn't repent. They didn't follow God. They didn't pray like God was their only hope. They relied on earthly things. They relied on their riches. They relied on their wisdom. They relied on their tactics. They relied on all of the human capacity that they had and ignored the incredible godly capacity of their heavenly Father. And so, and so uh, Hezekiah celebrated God in his success. And then what happens next? Well, look at Isaiah chapter 37. Go back to Isaiah chapter 37. Look at verse 1. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord. Well, what was it that he heard? Well, Sennacherib and his forces Hundreds of thousands of soldiers showed up at the doors of Jerusalem with all of their armies. And the, and the, the representatives of, of the Assyrian king Sennacherib, what had happened was they come, to the, they come to, the, to the wall of Jerusalem and they start speaking to the representatives 
they come, they come to the, speaking to the representatives of Hezekiah, and they're speaking in Hebrew. They're speaking the Hebrew language in Hebrew, and they're threatening Jerusalem. And here's what they're saying. Hey, I think you guys remember when we rolled through this town, and, you know, they tried to, they tried to ask their little G-gods for help and their little statues for help. And you know what we did? We walked in, and we took their little G-gods, and we burned them. And then we walked through this town, and we just marched right through it, and they thought they were something, but our army and our military, we just, we just rolled over that town like it was nothing. And you know what they cried to? You know what they claimed? They claimed that their little G-God, their little golden, their little silver statue was going to save them. And you know what? Their little G-God couldn't do a thing. And you know what we did next? We rolled right through Israel, your brothers, your cousins. We rolled right through Israel. And from Sennacherib's point of view, we rolled right over the little G gods of Israel. You have to understand, there were lots of little G gods in Israel. They were worshiping false gods. They were worshiping idols. They were worshiping all kinds of things. And now he's at the gates of Jerusalem saying, it's almost like he was, it's almost like he's at the gates of Claremore, heading this direction, right? He's just not that far. And and he's looking at, at, the, at the guys on the walls, and he's looking at their representatives saying, and guess what? Your little G God's next. So either give up peacefully, or we're going to roll over you just like we rolled over everybody else. That's the threat that's coming. And it's interesting because the representatives for, for, for Judah, the, for Hezekiah, they were like, hey, we speak Aramaic, we speak, we speak Arabic. Instead of saying this in Hebrew, say this to us in Arabic so that we can really understand you. And the reason why they did that was because Hezekiah's representatives didn't want the soldiers on the wall to be afraid and to hear what, what the guys from Assyria were saying that were threatening them so much. He just didn't want them to hear it. And, uh, and the, the, the Assyrians were like, oh, no, no, this affects them too. I'm going to speak it in the language that they can understand. So they're bowing their back, they're bowing their shoulders, they're stepping up and they're saying, oh, no, I want all you guys on the wall to hear this too. You guys who are high officials, you're going to die last and you're going to die worst, but these guys need to hear this too because you're all going to die if you don't just open the gates and let us in. We've rolled over everybody else. We're going to roll over you. And it's at that point that we get to Isaiah 37.1. And so it was when King Hezekiah heard it, that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went in to the house of the Lord. When you're anxious, I think he might have had reason to be anxious. You know what I think we should do when you're anxious? I think you should pray like God is your only hope. That's what I think you should do. And I know anxiety is a real issue these days. It's really interesting. My son's about to head to OU, and, and we had an orientation day, and on the screen, they, th- they threw up one of those pie charts of reasons why people drop out of college in their first semester. And, you know, one of the, you know, one of the big ones was just physical health. One of them was they're just not ready for college yet in terms of just mentally and physically they're not ready for it. One of them was uh, alcohol and addiction and uh, one of them was diet. Um, big one was sleep. They just don't get enough sleep. Um, they spend too much time partying, those kinds of things. Those were all in the pie chart. What's really interesting was the size of the one that was just marked anxiety. Huge percentage of people drop out of school in their first semester just because of anxiety. And I don't want to minimize what anxiety is, but it seems like all these other things in the pie charts are the 
cause of the anxiety and that anxiety is more of an effect than a cause. But whether it's an effect or a cause, anxiety is very real in our hearts and our minds these days. And even though we live in a very prosperous time and in a very safe environment overall, it's just really natural and normal for each one of us to feel some level of anxiety. Am I good enough? Am I smart enough? Am I going to be able to provide for my family? What about this new sickness that's out? What about this new problem I see overseas that might come over here and affect us? What about what's happening with immigration at our southern border? What about this next election? What about that guy who's about to do that thing that could affect me and my family in negative ways? I've got to go back to school, and I've got to get all the shopping done, and I've got to do, and the the list just piles up, and it piles up, and it stacks higher and higher, and anxiety just builds deeper and deeper and deeper when you're anxious, I wonder what would happen if you prayed like God was your only hope. There's so many things that trigger our anxieties. There's so many things that trigger our bad thoughts, our bad feelings, our bad emotions. I had a friend named Mike Compton who used to say, well, anything that causes me to pray more can't be all bad. And he was talking about some really ugly things that had happened in his life. I don't ever want to go through them again, but it sure made me pray more. And then he would say this. He would say, do you think the devil likes it when you pray? Like when you really turn your heart and mind towards God, and you really ask him, and you invite him into your heart and your life, you invite him to, to, to be a part of all the details of your life, to the big things and the small things, the good things and the bad things. Do you think, God, do you think the devil really likes it when you do that? And I would say, no, no, I don't think he likes it when you do that. Then what if every time you faced an anxiety, you prayed? What if every time you got frustrated, you prayed? What if every time you celebrated, you prayed? What if every time you faced somebody who was challenging your faith, what if you prayed? He goes, here's what I wonder. I wonder if Satan doesn't put pressure on our lives, and then he realized, oh, that's a weak spot. I can keep putting pressure there. I can keep pulling that trigger. I can keep doing that over and over again because every time I do it, uh, it's almost like two brothers picking on each other, right? Watch, if I push him just like that, he's just going to squeal and holler and yell. Oh, watch this. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again until he, it's not just a squeal and a holler. I'm going to keep doing it until it, it hurts them irreparably. I'm going to keep poking and prodding in that one area over and over and over again until it Well, remember John 10.10, the thief doesn't come but to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you, Jesus, has come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. I'm going to keep poking until with that one thing I can rob them and steal them and kill them of their life and their joy and their love for God. I'm just going to keep poking. What if every time he poked, that was your trigger not to respond the way he wants, but to bow your heart and your head and your mind and say, God, he's back, and it hurts What if you laid every trigger of anxiety every time it happened at at the feet of Jesus? That doesn't mean that medically, scientifically, the the things that we struggle with, with doubt and depression and and those kinds of things, it doesn't mean that they're instantly going to be overcome overnight, but it's definitely going to rob Satan of a tool that he uses to poke, prod, and pry in your life. At some point, Mike Compton would say to me, If every time Satan kicks you with that one topic, if every time you do it, you pray, he doesn't want you to pray. He'll stop kicking you like that. He'll find another way to do it. 
And so I wonder if every time we're anxious, we could pray like God's our only hope. You know, I'm reminded of Philippians chapter 4. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you have a complicated family, when your nation's misguided, when you're successful, when you're anxious, pray like God's your only hope. And then you've got these enemies sometimes that come around you. Maybe it's not simply the devil. Maybe there are people literally around you in your workplace, at your school, on the ball field, wherever you live your life. Maybe there are people who have just decided they don't like you and they're coming after you. Look at Isaiah chapter 37, verses 14 and 15. Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrians, didn't just stand at the gates and threaten the children of Israel, the children of Judah. He didn't just do that. He, he took the time to write a letter. Have you ever had somebody in your life that's just mad enough at you, that just hates you enough that they're going to write, I'm going to write a letter, and they're just going to write a letter and give it to you? That's exactly what Sennacherib did. And in that letter, he outlined all the things that's going to happen to Hezekiah and his kingdom. Actually, um, my friend James Lankford used to run Falls Creek. And it was really funny. Before he was a senator, he ran Falls Creek. And I worked with him one summer, and he had decided to grow a goatee. People do that, right? There's, I'm looking around the congregation. A lot of you have goatees. It was really funny. In Southern Baptist life, this, we have plenty of time to write down things and express our opinions. At the end of Falls Creek, he got several letters from pastors and volunteers about how wicked and evil he was for growing a goatee. <laughs> They just wanted to tell him how the way, that is just the way of the devil. I can't believe you grew a goatee. And the next summer we worked together, the next summer he just decided because it was hot and he didn't want to have a goatee and he liked kissing his wife and his wife didn't like his goatee so he shaved his goatee, went all through the whole summer, all seven, eight weeks of camp of summer without a goatee and at the end of the summer, you know what, he, you know what happened? He got new letters, <laughs> and the new letters were from other people going, I can't believe you gave in to those people who are complaining about your goatee, you wishy-washy, mealy-mouthed, backslidden guy. I can't believe you did that. Sennacherib didn't write a letter like that. His letter was much more threatening. He was saying, I'm coming after you and all your people, and I'm going to take you out. And verses uh, 14 and 15, look what Hezekiah does. And Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Hey, when enemies threaten you, you know what you should do? You might be able to guess at this point. What should you do? You should pray like God is your only hope. That's what you should do. You should pray like God is your only hope. When when enemies threaten you. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some may trust in, in horses and some may trust in chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some may trust in their reputation. Some may trust in their intelligence. Some may trust in their bank account. Some may trust in their influence. Some may trust in their wisdom. Some may trust in their nation. Some may trust in their community. Some may trust in their family. Some may trust in... But we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. And for Hezekiah, that made all the difference. Because you know what the end of the story is? 
Hezekiah spreads this letter out in front of God and says, God, I can't. You can. Please do. You know, our prayers don't have to be complicated. They don't have to use the fancy old King James English that no one ever speaks anymore. If we pray in old King, King James, if you do that, that's just fine. But sometimes I think God's looking at us going, Thou? Thou what? Whoest or youest praying to me? You know, I think sometimes that we get too formal in our thoughts and our prayers. But essentially, Hezekiah goes, God, I can't. You can. Please do. How many things in your life would be different if you would take the time when you're triggered, as you face them, even before the potential shows up, if you would just say, God, I can't, but I know you can. Please do. And then you add one more thought. And whatever you choose, I trust you. That's what David did. Whatever, pray like God is your only hope. And you know what happened to Sennacherib? It's really kind of funny. After Hezekiah prays this prayer, God sends his sword. He doesn't define exactly what he means by his sword, but he sends his sword through the camp of the Assyrians. And in a single night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers never wake up. They go to bed that night, and 185,000, it's the majority of the Assyrian army, 185,000 soldiers die on the battlefield without Judah's army lifting a finger because God fought the battle for them. And then you know what happened? Sennacherib, which is exactly what Isaiah said would happen, Sennacherib, he goes home. He goes home defeated. He can't take over Judah because he didn't face a little G God. He faced the God of the armies of Israel. And Hezekiah stood up and basically said, this is the God of the armies of Israel, and you can't defeat him. You might be able to defeat me. You might be able to take my cousins because they were misguided. But in this nation, we worship the Lord our God, and none can stand against him. 185,000 Assyrian, 185, Assyrian soldiers died that day. And then you know what happened after that? Sennacherib goes home. And he's worshiping in the temple of his false god, Nasrik, when his two sons come in and they kill him to take the throne. Their brother, Ezerhaddon, becomes the king of Assyria. This nation that has rolled over everything finally rolls up to the gates of the people of God. And because they were a people who prayed, God gave them the victory. And I guess that's the last piece of this. When God gives you the victory, you know what you should do? You might be able to predict it, right? What, what, what should you do when God gives you the victory? Pray. Like God is your only hope. And you know why? Well, because He is. Because He is. Look at Isaiah 37, 21. Excuse me. Yeah, Isaiah 37, 21. It's the last part of that chapter. Isaiah 30, 37, 21. Then Isaiah, the son of Amaz, sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Because you have prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, here's what's going to happen. Because you prayed. How many times as we read through this story and the story of the kings of Israel, do you hear God say, because of my servant David, I'm going to do this for Israel. Because of my servant David, 
I'm going to do this for Hezekiah. Because of my servant David, I'm going to do this for this next king. Because of my servant David, I'm going to preserve, I'm going to protect, I'm going to guide, I'm going to guard. I'm going to... How many times do we read because of? And I wonder what prayers you're praying today that someday a generation will look back on. And instead of saying, it's all their fault, Instead of saying, all these problems we have to overcome, it's because they didn't do what was right. It's because they did the wrong thing. I wonder if they'll be able to look back and say, because my great-great-grandfather prayed, here's what's happening in my life. Because my grandfather prayed. Because my son prayed. Here's what's happening now. And so let me invite you to bow your head and close your eyes and pray. For some, the reason we need to pray today is because you've not yet really met God. And it begins just the way Hezekiah challenged his nation. It begins with you saying, God, I need you. I know my life is broken. Would you forgive me of the ways I've avoided and rejected you? And would you draw me close to you and allow me to be forgiven of my sins. He'll answer that prayer, yes, only every time. And then for the rest of us, maybe you have a complicated family. Maybe you're concerned over our misguided nation. Maybe you're living in the middle of the greatest success you've ever experienced or the deepest anxiety you've ever had. Maybe there are enemies all around you and you're just simply waiting for God to give the victory in whatever condition you are now. It's time to pray like God is your only hope. Father, I pray right now that you would move in our hearts and our minds and our lives, that we would be the people who would pray specifically, that we would pray by name for situations and circumstances and people and friends and family, and that you would allow us to be the people that someday some others would look back on and say, because they prayed, here's what's happened. I pray that we would celebrate the glory of who you are and the gift of what you've given to us in everything that you've done. And that in moments just like these, that you would remind us of our sin, that you would give us the gift of repentance, that you would allow us to celebrate the, the love that you've shown us, that we would say simply thank you for all that you've done. And you've drawn us into this place in this moment for this reason. And that is to worship you and to surrender and to submit to you. And so as we do that in our families, in our nation, in our success, our anxiety, our victories, and in those threats that we face, we surrender and submit to you, and we call, Father, on the precious and powerful name of Jesus. Father, we ask these things in your name. Amen.